is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. My next guest has me in awe. Journalist Kim Barker's travels make all of my adventures abroad seem like travel light, and I don't mind telling her because she's earned every single one of her stories. As the South Asia Bureau Chief for the Chicago Tribune from 2004 to 2009, Kim has covered major stories like the assassination of former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto, and the rising militancy in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. Kim shared some of her hair-raising tales with me at Hosteling International in New York, and she revealed what did and didn't make it into her book called The Taliban Shuffle. Let's listen. You almost make all the travel I've done feel like travel light. Because even though I've been living with Maasai warriors and all of that sort of thing, I mean, it feels like you've been dodging bullets. You've been in some really extreme areas, and I'm so fascinated by the stories you have to tell. You were the South Asia Bureau Chief for the Chicago Tribune from 2004 to 2009? Yes, that's right. Okay, and you're based in New Delhi and Islamabad. Yeah, I sort of, like, I started out in Delhi, and then I realized... A couple years in that I was never at home so uh-huh. it made more sense for me to move over to Islamabad and then I just sort of went back and forth between Afghanistan and Pakistan most of the time. Wow so how did you even get there? I mean was travel in your blood? What made you want to do this? I mean I grew up in Montana and Wyoming so I can't say that I was super sophisticated or traveling all over the place uh-huh. and we didn't have a lot of money so I wasn't actually used to leaving the country even. I didn't even yeah. get my first passport until I think 19 1999 was when oh, I got wow. my first passport. You've yeah. done a lot in that amount of time. I did. I did. I made <laughs> up for it. And my first um, overseas trip was actually to visit a friend of mine who was in the Peace Corps, okay. and she was in Jordan. So my first overseas trip was to Jordan and to then Egypt to see the pyramids, something oh, wow. I'd always wanted to do. But it was sort of like you go from zero to 100 and skip over a lot of the in-betweens like Mexico and Canada right. and you know Europe and go just right for more hardcore stuff with the guys already pinching your butts and, <laughs> yes. and, and having you, the best was being at the pyramids and being with three females and being referred to as the Spice Girls the entire day and really they did think we were the Spice Girls wow. um, yeah and we looked nothing like the Spice Girls and, and you know had all these people posing with us and <laughs> entire classes of school kids like yeah Spice Girls sing a song oh we my really goodness yeah. I know it was a little hardcore it is and so You know, after that first trip, I came back to the States and vowed just to travel as much as possible. started thinking about how I could get overseas, and because I was a journalist, so Mm -hmm. I moved to the Chicago Tribune in the beginning of 2001. And then by the end of 2001, it was pretty clear that our entire world had changed, right? You know, with the attacks of 9-11... I just really wanted to go to the heart of where it seemed the news was, where you could try to make it. There was no making sense of it, but trying right. to understand um, other cultures and try to translate in a way back home that made sense to people. So yeah. I started going over there in early 2002. My first trip, I got off the plane in Islamabad. And keep in mind, I'm somebody who hadn't even been to Europe before I went to Islamabad. Oh. Yeah, And so I had really very little sense of what I was doing. And, yeah, just ended up making my way through it. And then by the time 2004 rolled around, they were looking for a South Asia bureau chief, and I had had so much time logged in the region already, it made sense for me to take that job. So I moved over there. So how did you do this? How did you find it within yourself to find the guts 
I mean, really. So, so your first experiences were, you know, getting your butt pinched in Cairo. How did that make you say, yes, I'm going to go see more? Oh, my God. I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I've always been very curious. And I think mm. there's a certain sort of person that's just drawn to it. Yeah. And, you know, even when things seem a little bit adverse, I mean, like when you're sick, you know, when you've ate right. something bad, when you're holed up in a hotel for a couple of days, when you're freezing, when you're miserable, when you're arguing with everybody you've traveled with, when your flight's been canceled. <laughs> I mean, all of this, it's just like this other challenge that's sort of put ahead of you, and you learn more about yourself. That's I right. think the you know the farther you get away from home, yeah. I mean, you become much more comfortable with your place in the world. Mm-hmm. You learn as much as things seem so different in many places. We're all very much the same. I think yeah. you learn a lot more tolerance, and I just loved it. As soon as I actually went to Jordan and Egypt, I immediately just started thinking, how could I eventually get a job that allowed me to live over there and do mm-hmm. as much travel? as possible and even when I first moved over to India in 2004 I didn't come home for two years I mean it kind of freaked my parents out you know you can imagine you know when I got vacation I just wanted to go someplace else in the region you know see as much as you can yeah wow so you were stationed over there from 2004 to 2009 Mm -hmm. okay so while you were at the Tribune you covered major stories like the assassination of former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto and the rising militancy in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so then from that time there, you created your book, The Taliban Shuffle, Strange Days in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Right. What is the Taliban Shuffle? (laughs) (laughs) It's a crazy dance. I mean, I really wanted to figure out a way in leaving, and I knew I was I was leaving at least for a little while in 2009 because my job had completely evaporated. I was angry, you know, I felt like this real sense of anger about everything that had happened in Afghanistan and Pakistan and the whole sense that nobody was paying attention, nobody seemed to understand. I really wanted to do a couple things with this book. I wanted to write about Afghanistan and Pakistan in a way that was very accessible to Americans, that they might be able to understand all the mistakes that had been made on all sides in both countries. And in a way that was darkly comic. It's funny. It's a funny it book. It is funny. It's supposed I love to be, this book. It's, <laughs> it's supposed to be funny, and that surprises people because I wrote it from a very furious place. How did but you do that? How are you I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've always had like a dark sense of humor <laughs> to cope with things. I mean, at a certain point, if you didn't laugh at what was going on and all the absurdity, and it is a lot of absurdity, you know, you'd be Crash. catatonic <laughs> in the corner sobbing, you know, yeah. and, and that's what was funny about it. It's like, you know, the Afghans and, and the Pakistanis I know who read English, you know, who've read the book are just like, my sister, you understand our sense of humor because it very much is you've got to, I think in, yeah. in these countries, you've got got to develop some sort of coping mechanism and often it's humor it's really true actually i was living in sierra leone and my host was telling me about their civil war and how she saw this is so graphic and horrible but she saw a little kid playing soccer with somebody's decapitated head and as she was telling me she was smiling and i couldn't understand it but i do now they saw so much tragedy how could they not try to make it a little bit lighter in yeah, some it's way. gallows humor it's, it's it what is. cops do it's what journalists yeah. do yeah you know it's what doctors do it's mm-hmm. gallows humor that's right so tell me about some of the stories that you have in the book that are so crazy like you were romantically pursued by the former prime minister of pakistan yeah it's true 
It's true. But, I mean, he was very nice about it. You know, it's like... He was it's, trying to it's, you over. <laughs> yeah, it was, he, was, he was very gentlemanly about it. I mean, the way it's sort of been portrayed in the Pakistani media is, is rather frustrating because uh, they refer to me as the Monica Lewinsky of Pakistan. Oh, no, and I'm no. like, I'm like, oh, come on, man. That's not at all. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't wear a thong and I didn't do anything, you know. It was all very G-rated. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is. it was very funny. I mean, I really couldn't believe the fact that... What happened happened, which was he came back to Pakistan and he had been in exile for at least 10 years. And when he came back, it was right before Benazir Bhutto was killed. And so you've got this really sort of angsty time in the country. It's late 2007. Benazir's been killed. The country's on fire. And he is the only sort of senior statesman, opposition party leader who's around. Yeah. So I, I arranged to meet with him and we talked and I was supposed to be there for you know, 20 minutes and it stretched into more like 40 minutes. And he became like somebody I would just call for information you know i would mm -hmm. call him up and i could always get a quote from him and it was it was very helpful as it's a journalist right you know yeah. it's like i'm always able to get the former prime minister of pakistan <laughs> on the phone he was a nice guy he was he was funny as a he has a good sense of humor so then you know we roll around to it's say like august of 2008 and the country again is crumbling i feel like pakistan's always crumbling to a certain extent and repeating the mistakes of its past. And so, you know, I'm meeting with him because Musharraf, the military dictator, is in the process of likely stepping down. His party, Nawaz Sharif's, the former prime minister's party, has just pulled out of the parliament. You've got the Taliban marching towards Kabul. You've got like, you know, 300,000 refugees coming down from the tribal areas because, you know, you've got the military doing an offensive up there. So there is chaos. There is chaos. And it's coming towards Islamabad as usual. And so, you know, I went to meet with him and he, he met with me alone, which was unusual. And then at the very end of our meeting, he basically asked me if I had a friend. You know, he says, do you have a friend? Right. And uh, I said, well, I have a lot of friends. <laughs> and so, you know, it came down and he wanted to know if I had a, a boyfriend. And I just was like, God, where's this going to go? So, yeah. you know, I told the truth, which was I was newly single and had just broken up with somebody. And he offered to find me. So he's like, you know, I'll find you a friend. And I'm like, okay, well, the former... Prime Minister of Pakistan is offering to set me up. <laughs> One cannot say no to this as a right. journalist. I don't know a single journalist out there that would say no to this idea because, you know, it's a good story and we like good stories, right? Right. So uh, he asked me what my criteria are. I said, what are your criteria? And I said, tall, funny, and smart. And he really, I remember him so vividly standing up and going to the window and looking out and saying, you know, tall, tall will be difficult. We are, you know, it's Pakistan. We're not a tall people. You know, he's like, funny, funny is possible, but what exactly do you mean by smart? And I was like, well, isn't it obvious? I'm like, you know, smart, you know, yeah. intelligent. And he goes, oh, you know, I go clever. And he says, oh, clever, clever. Yes, but you do not want a cunning friend. And I'm like, no, who wants a cunning friend? He leapt right from clever to cunning. And yeah, it just got, I mean, like, it got a bit absurd. And so... You know, essentially, I left him with marching orders. He would occasionally text, like, from, you know, London or wherever, saying he was working on the project, and he started referring huh. to his project. I mean, and it turned into this thing where it's like I'd get these texts, and I, I was telling everybody about this because I was like, this is absurd, yeah. you know, right? Uh, he doesn't mean anything, you know, and people are like, nah, he's like your Punjabi uncle, and Pakistanis yeah. always feel obligated to set, you know, people up, and I said, fine. 
And, you know, it went on till like, of course, inevitably, I went there for lunch one day because I wanted to talk to him about the negotiations with the Taliban because he had been in Saudi Arabia at the time. Some deal was worked out between folks from Afghanistan through the Saudi kingdom, allegedly having to do with negotiations with the Taliban. So, you know, I went there to talk to him about this, and somewhere during this elaborate meal that is just for the two of us, and, you know, silver, and Uh we're being waited on by, you know, a staff of thousands, and he basically tells me that he's come up with two options for me. One was, you know, Asif Zardari, who was Benazir Bhutto's, (laughs) you know, widower, and uh, I said, that doesn't sound like a good thing. You know, I did honestly <laughs> say to him, he's like, why not? And I said, well, his last wife didn't come to such a good end. And I really did say that. And I initially I put that in the book. And my mother was like, you have got to take that out. It makes you sound horrible. And I'm like, why? It's the truth. Yeah. It's actually, you know, what I said, because it's the first thing that popped out of my mouth. And then he said, the second option we'll discuss later. And at that point, I was like, oh, this uh... is not this is not good. So, yeah, we, it went on from there. And then, you know, in, at some point he offered me a phone. He said we needed to talk by, you know, a private phone so that nobody could overhear our phone conversations. And ultimately it ended up with me telling my bosses I couldn't really see him anymore. But then, like, I had to go see him one last time because, of course, there was the terrorist attacks in Mumbai. And yeah. uh, Nawaz Sharif was one of the most powerful people in the country. And he was definitely the most powerful person at that point in the state of Punjab, which is yeah. the power center in of Pakistan and it's where all the terrorists in Mumbai had come from. So hmm. I went to go see him. I brought my translator slash fixer slash, you know, sort of Man Friday with me and he's just mortified just sitting there like, because of course now I'm sure he speaks perfect English. Yeah. And it ended up that he asked my translator to leave at one point and then he offered me this iPhone that he had bought me. Uh-huh. And I said, no, I can't possibly take it, I, you know. And then it led up to the line that I do still hope will take off in, in American bars, but it hasn't quite yet, which is, I know I'm not as fit as you want, I'm not as tall as you want, I'm fat and I'm old, but I'd still like to be your friend, which I found incredibly charming. I mean, it's yes. just like, you know, as far as like a line, you're, you're like, well, geez, you could have said you're a billionaire, you know? <laughs> yeah, you could have um, gone for you. Yeah. You know, there are other things you could mention, you know, <laughs> and... So, of course, I said no, but, I mean, for me, really, it's and the whole reason that I use this story in the book is to go with the whole idea of the hypocrisy of the leadership yeah. in these countries, particularly in Pakistan, where it's well documented at this point, where folks will say one thing and then do something completely different, whether yeah. it's, you know, we're saying we're going against the Taliban, we're really doing something different. And here you had a man who had positioned himself as this Islamic leader. He wanted to, during his last regime, declare himself the leader of the faithful and, you know, really was sort of courting the religious right. Yet this is what he was doing in his private life. Yeah. And it's also also for women. I mean, like, if this is happening to a foreign reporter, yeah. you know, I know plenty of stories, but, like, what's happening to other women there? Right. So I sort of felt like I had an obligation as a female journalist not to just silence this stuff and not to hide it, no. you know, and to call folks on it. Absolutely. So. Well, to that point, what's happening to women in those regions? I mean, I'm yeah. going to start a charity for acid burn victims and facial mutilation and things like that. There's a lot that, as Westerners, we don't really know about or want to know about. It's starting to come out with documentaries like Saving Face and things like that. But I'm glad that you kept it in the book because it's really important to give the full face of what's going on. And it's also there, hilarious. You know? And it's hilarious. Man, you were like a lucky gal, actually. He was quite a catch. <laughs> 
So now the boyfriend that you talked about that you had recently broken up with, is he the one that was vying for the same story as you? (laughs) What's that about? (laughs) I know, I know, right? You know, it's like, yeah. That's a little doomed. Yeah, I know, it's all doomed. Like, it's doomed from the very beginning. I mean, I, I think it's okay to date journalists, definitely, but when... I had basically said, okay, you can come piggyback on my story with me using my translator. And, it's and quite then generous you, and of you, they, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was more fun to do stories together with friends or whatever than to do them separately. But you would really carefully say, okay, this is when my story is running. I yeah. get to go first. Yes. Like, at the very least, I get to go first. Yes. And yeah, he totally scooped me on my own story. Yeah, yeah. That's not a good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lesson, right? It's a lesson. Right, right, lesson right, learned. right. So tell me some more stories about you as a female reporter in those areas. I mean, what are some things that you needed to do? You you covered your hair? You... It, it always depended on who I was going to talk to. And, okay. And, you know, there's differences of opinion as to how you should behave if you're a Western woman in these circumstances. I mean, and, and what are those? Because yeah. a lot of women that you know, travel solo and want to travel to some regions like this, it can be a little sensitive. They need to know some tips, you know, hair up on head or sure. covered or... Sure. I mean, like, it's like Laura Logan, the TV journalist who's been mm-hmm. in the news lately, her feeling is always, she goes in there and she dresses the way she does here. I mean, maybe wears hmm. long sleeves... But like she wears what she wears as well. Yeah, she wears what she wears here, and she feels like you know that is her job to sort of push forward and say, look, I'm not going to adhere to your stupid Mm -hmm. rules that don't even really have any place. You know, they're more cultural a lot of times than necessarily just religious. So, I mean, her feeling is, I'm not going to cover my hair in these situations unless I absolutely have to. And I, you know, I, I'm going to wear what I wear, and you're going to have to get to, used to women you yeah. know, being strong, independent Times women. Times are changing right. over there. Yeah, and my feeling is much like I approach reporting here. I want to dress and behave however makes a person feel as comfortable as possible to talk to me. Yeah. So, for instance, if I'm going to go talk to a college student here, I'm wearing jeans. I mean, yeah. I prefer wearing jeans, and I'm going to be more casual. If I'm going to interview a CEO, I'm wearing a suit. You right. know. So therefore, when I was over there, if I was going to interview a cleric, you know, a very religious man, I would cover up and I would not offer to shake his hand unless he offered to shake my hand. I would play that card because it made him more comfortable to talk to me. Yeah. And I, you know, look, I feel like my job in many ways is to, to not change things so much by my own personal behavior. You, you do. I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to change a few individual lives, but to document how things are changing and, and to document what's happening. You know, I really saw some of the negative fallout from women who would go over there and they'd start this nonprofit, do this charity and, you know, yeah. say, you can do this, you can do this, tell your husband this, so that's bullshit, he can't do this. And then they would give these women all this hope and all these, like, sort of and ideas. And then they go back home. And then they go back home. And, like, you know, these women are sort of left with, okay, what do I do with all this now? Because I still yeah. have to fit in this society. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I felt like... Look, you can go along and try to change things by your appearance, but look, talk to any woman in Iran, mm-hmm. and they're always like, you, you Western women journalists are always focused on the fact that we have to wear a headscarf. Mm-hmm. You're always focused on what we're wearing. You know, if that was the biggest problem we had, we'd be totally fine. It's so uh, a small problem compared to all the other things going on with women. Yeah. But we do tend to focus on it, you know, because yep. it's a visible thing that's different between being over there and being here. That's right. 
So what are some tips that you have for solo women travelers and they want to be able to walk through a market? Maybe they don't walk through a market actually. If you're a solo foreign woman and you look sort of visibly foreign yeah. in Pakistan and India, I mean, you're, you're fine in Islamabad. You mm-hmm. are fine in Islamabad. But I would when you say get to the outskirts, it would be Rawalpindi, not so fine. Yeah. You know, and look, I was going around most of the time with either my driver or yeah. a translator in my driver. I always had somebody with me who could speak the local language, and you're just being stupid, I think, if yeah. you're going around these places, if you're not with anybody who can communicate for you. Yeah. Did you ever have any problems with the translators themselves, or you found some pretty legitimate... Oh, sure. In the very beginning, I had yeah. a problem in Pakistan. This guy was hilarious. You know, I'd, <laughs> I'd call him up. You know, it's midnight. I'm like, you know, I haven't got this interview. I, you know, I'm trying to do this story. This guy won't call me back, and he'd be like... I come to you now. I'm like, no, you don't come to me now. He's like, I come to you now. And then he, all of a sudden, you know, knocking on the door, the way he would talk about his wife and then his girlfriends. Uh, then really? we went to Lahore together, and I said, okay, I, I got two rooms for us. And he's like, why two rooms? Why not one room? So, huh. you know, sometimes it's like writing that line and figuring out how you need to behave yes. so that you're friendly. But you're firm and still boss-like because the whole thing with, you know, the joking around, the smiling, the sort of things that we do naturally as Western women can just be misinterpreted. So you have to come up with almost a different way to behave. And again, you could call that blaming the victim. I called it surviving. Yeah. Uh, But like, look, the guys I ultimately worked with, and they were mostly guys in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, were great guys. They will always be part of my heart and part of my life. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of trial and error. But like, if you're a foreign woman going to these places... It's totally possible to go to Afghanistan. It's totally possible to travel to certain places in Afghanistan. You just, you know, you get a guide. Or you go with a group and you get a guide. Or, you know, you sort of piggyback on other people when you get there. But the whole idea of going around and like, oh, now I'm going to do something crazy, like get on a bus and go from Bamiyan to Kabul. Not smart. You don't want to do that. Right. You don't want to go on a bus. You don't want to do public transportation. I know it sounds romantic. It's just not safe. You know, you're going to get kidnapped. You've got a dollar sign on your forehead. Right. You know, and it's one thing if you speak enough of the foreign language and if you look like you fit in. If you don't... You know, forget about it. Yeah, yeah. I like that you come to these problems from a place of humor because I would just get angry. And that's not helpful at all. You know, that does nothing. It makes everyone miserable. So I'm trying to work on just being like, okay, well, these things might happen in these areas and I need to learn to laugh about it, you know, rather than just... Ah, why? Why? (laughs) No, I mean, like, look, you know, it's like I always found it would help you in the most bizarre ways. You know, when I was covering this whole chief justice being removed by, you know, the dictator Musharraf in Pakistan um, from his post, and he started doing these, they call them jalsis, where you drive from one city to another, and the whole goal is that you get surrounded by Uh hundreds and thousands of people, so you can't go very fast, and they're throwing roses at you, and like... And what's it called? It's like a jalsi, if I'm remembering correctly. And this is like the way the campaigns have been run from time immemorial in Pakistan. So they really haven't switched to this whole idea of like we're doing everything on TV or social media and all that. It's very much sort of a person-to-person thing. Yeah. So yeah, they were doing these things for the chief justice and his lawyer was driving him around. And I had been trying desperately to get an interview with this chief justice, as had everybody else. I mean, and why on earth is he going to talk to the Chicago Tribune? 
probably not going to talk to the Chicago Tribune. So it's, you're trying your charming best, you know, you're like being a, a bit harassing in the way one is. So I was like, I managed to get myself into the car with some friends of mine that's with the wife of the lawyer of the chief justice. So we're in the second okay. car. We're pretty good. We're, yeah. you know, and so at one point I get out because I want to experience it. But of course, I don't have a translator with me. I have nobody protecting me. You know, I'm just sort of out there getting color. And all of a sudden, it's like ass-grabbing stars. Yeah. You know, I'm five foot ten, so it's just there. And I'm just like, I'm freaking out. Yelling at him, like, would you do this to your mother, your sister? So I, I managed to, like, grab a hand of a guy after he pinched me because I was just waiting. You know, it's like I had my trap waiting for the yeah. hand to come and I grabbed it. And I turned around. He's a little guy, you know, probably around 50. And I just punched him. He's like, no, 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 no. And I just punched him in the face. I mean, I got so good at punching there. I would just wail on guys, you know? Um, This, of course, makes everybody just laugh. I mean, they think this is hilarious, like this freaking out Western woman. And so then, like, you know, the window unrolls from the Chief Justice's vehicle, and, you know, there's a lawyer in there, and he's like, Kim, you know, because they all knew me, they're like, Kim, you know, is there a problem? I'm like, yeah, there's a problem. problem? You know, there's like, they're all pinching me. And so he's like, you know, great, now I have to protect this woman. So, you know, they're sending out these lawyers. And the lawyers, they all wear the same outfits, which are basically white shirts and black jackets and black pants. So they're all trying to, like, hold hands to protect me. And still the hands are coming through. Oh, wow. You know, it was hilarious. And I'm freaking out. And they're just, they don't know what to do. And so finally, like, the window unrolls. And they're like, get in. You know, so then like, my plan was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, you know, and of course it was no plan, like, right. much of my career. You know, so I, I get into the car. Another lawyer gets out to make room for me, and every journalist has been trying to get in this car and try to be alone with the Chief Justice on one of these things. And it was my sort of average ass that ended up getting me in there. So I get into the car, and the lawyer, Itzazaz Asan, he got upset at me later. I had dinner with him recently, and he's like, Why didn't you name me in the book? I'm like, People can only take so many Muslim names. Yeah. He's like, Every lawyer on the team tries to claim that it was him driving. And I'm <laughs> like, Well, I will sign an affidavit that says it was yeah. you. Yeah. But I get in there, and Itzazaz says to me, He goes, do not talk to the chief justice. Do not try to interview the chief justice. You know, just sit there and, you know, be quiet. And I just, I waited like a beat. I'm like, but what if the chief justice wants to talk to me? <laughs> and, you know, the chief justice laughs, you know. So then, of course, like, I had broken the seal of getting in there. And so then my friend who worked for Time Magazine, all of a sudden she had seen this happen. All of a sudden she's outside. And I'm like, Aaron, Aaron, are you getting here? Is, is your ass getting pinched? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, she's got to get in here, too. <laughs> We were able to get this woman, Tammy. I mean, Tammy would have been in no matter what, but she was a Pakistani journalist who was uh, pretty tight with Itazaz, and so she got in the car as well. So then it was just the three of us riding along in the car. You know, I remember going by this friend of mine who worked for the New York Times, and her car was broken down on the side of the road, and she was there, and, like, we're going by, and she just sees my... And she's just like, and all of a sudden, I'm sort of getting missed calls from her yeah. and from everybody else. See, so, so you know, you got to look at like the good things that can exactly. come out, out of this. <laughs> and also, I mean, I feel like the more you react with a sense of humor, I don't know, it's, it helps you also internally. Not to say yes. that I didn't react in total anger at certain points. You get frustrated and sometimes things boil over, but yeah. I mean, you learn patience more than anything That's else. That's right. And the thing is, is we're putting ourselves in those circumstances. Right. You know? So right. <laughs> it's not like a right. surprise, but right. still sometimes right. I do get right. surprised. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay, tell me about DBIEDs. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, the sort of, like, the acronyms you get with yeah. the military are hilarious. Oh, it's an IED, an improvised explosive device. Uh-huh. Or a bomb. 
You're right. <laughs> Usually <laughs> roadside bomb. Simple. And you'd get to different kind of IEDs, different kinds of improvised explosive devices, the more you'd pile on different sort of acronyms in front. So you had the VBIED, which was a vehicle-borne I improvised explosive device, otherwise known as a car bomb. Right. Now, the DBIED, which was actually an acronym that was used, was a donkey-borne improvised explosive device. That's in other crazy. words, a bomb strapped to a donkey. Right. This was like something that came along where I think in the very beginning, the Afghans, were, they're not suicide bombers. They, they came to the suicide bombing thing late, you know, huh. and really it was a tactic that was brought over from Iraq, like probably 2003 when the first suicide bomb happened in okay. Afghanistan. I mean, so it's relatively, yeah. it's relatively late. And they weren't real fans of the idea of dying for jihad. They're like, look, we're used to fighting over right. here, you know, but we, <laughs> we would not voluntarily blow ourselves up. You know, that took a while to sort of accept. And actually, there's many more Pakistanis that have done it than Afghans. Anyway, the DBIED was a way to get around this idea of blowing yourself up. You strap the bomb to the donkey, you send the donkey towards, towards where you want the bomb to go up. But Donkeys don't listen. They're stubborn. They're stubborn. They'll turn around. They'll come back at you. You know, there's many sort of examples of DBIEDs gone awry. That's funny. You also talk about the chaotic election process in Afghanistan in 2005. And I love what you wrote. You say, during parliamentary elections, voters had to choose from 390 candidates. The ballot folded out into seven large pages. And each candidate had a photograph and a symbol because many Afghans were illiterate. But creativity ran out, and symbols had to be reused. Candidates were identified as different objects, including a pair of scissors, one camel, two camels, three camels, two sets of barbells, mushrooms, two ice cream cones, three corn cobs, two tomatoes, stairs, a turkey, two turkeys, one eye, a pair of eyes, a tire, two tires, three tires, to name a few. The symbols were randomly drawn out of a box. Now, I think that's hilarious because you can't even pick your own symbol. No. What if you've got a lame symbol? Oh, I know. I mean, there were problems with that. <laughs> like, you know, there'd be the guy that's like, I am not going to be that little water pitcher because that's what's used to wash yourself after you yeah. go to the bathroom. Yeah. I'm not going as that. No, sorry. Got to do it again. <laughs> I was following around three camels, I think, or I was following around two camels. Okay. You know, this guy who was like a candidate. And he's like, I'm right next to three camels. We got to, you know, we got to somehow differentiate yeah. from three camels, you know. And it was like so hard for these guys. And then you have the sort of hot young woman, I think her name was Sabrina, who had her campaign picture was of her in a yellow headscarf, and she like had pulled two bunnies, you know, oh. it was just like huge, you know, it does, it does, it does, it works. So yeah, but it was like, you know, and these guys would get so frustrated. What am I supposed to do with a turkey? How's that going to work for me? And so you rented a room in the Fun House. Right, right, okay. right, right. You describe it as a kind of dorm filled with journalists, UN workers, lawyers, other Westerners. So you write that you became a bit of an adrenaline junkie, hooked on things that went boom. But eventually, you realized that you had turned into this almost drowning caricature of a war hack, working, swearing, and drinking your way through life and relationships, and that you had a choice. You could choose life, or you could choose to keep hopping from one tragedy to the next. So you returned home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, actually, I think I'm more like I chose to stay home because there I came, you, you know, it's like I, I got this fellowship at the Council on Foreign Relations okay. where I ended up writing the book. And it was, it was I mean, it's much... 
I think that like the thing that you, people don't talk that much about when you travel a lot or when you live overseas is how much more difficult it is to come home. It, is it just, was horrible for me. Just, and I was just yeah. gone a year, and yeah. I wasn't experiencing what you were I mean, I was living really you know remote areas and tribes and villages and all of this, but, but still, for you, I can't imagine that amount of time in the scenario you were in. How long and how did you do it? How did you transition back? You just do it. I mean, like much like when you're traveling to places you've never been, you just yeah. come home and you just do it. It's just a matter of getting used to the new environment, which is not as many things go boom. Things yeah. don't go boom in my life any longer. And how can people relate to you now, though? Like oh, when I, you first got home? Oh, they couldn't. They're I mean, just like, like, what are you talking about? No, I mean, it depended on, I mean, I lost friends, most definitely. I came yeah. back and there are people who I thought were very dear friends um, who were in New York. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to come home and I get to see them again, you know? Yeah. And they were just like, no, I think that I was just too much. Yeah. And then I had one friend from college who, I mean, he's such a sweetheart. He went and he read everything he could. He read about PTSD, mm-hmm. which I don't know that I had, but I definitely had a post, like, you know, adrenaline situation. But he read everything he could, and then he read everything he could in the news about Afghanistan and Pakistan. And when we would go out, he would just ask me about Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it was such a sweet, kind thing to do. It was just like, and it helped provide this bridge. And then there were some friends who I had known over there who had gone through it before me. So they sort of would help me. You know, they were sort of like my leaders through this process of reentry. And that was great. And then there were people I wasn't necessarily that close with before I went overseas, but I reconnected with them when I came back here. And we're really good friends now. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's all, over the, it's all over the map. And I think it sort of depends on how open somebody is to the idea of you being different, you That's know? That's right. That's really nice of your friend to have yeah. studied up to be able yeah. to talk to you about that. Because a lot of people, when they talk to me about my travels, I'll start telling them and then I can just see the glaze oh, yeah, sure, come sure, over sure. and I just kind of stop. And to the point where I don't tend to talk about my work or my travels unless it's to other journalists or other travel writers and I've got my wonderful community there so that's the place where I talk about it yeah I mean and that's where I'm at now it's like now I rarely bring up I mean other people might bring up my book or where I used to live but I tend not to talk about it that much because it makes people look at me like you're so odd yeah. you know you're so weird and like, like why yeah. why, did why you would you do, do that, that? That's, yeah or, or like my favorite well what was that like and it's like wow I mean I, I would do you, do you want the two second <laughs> yeah. you know it was awesome um, it was life changing <laughs> you know or do you actually want to hear me tell some stories or is it just boring because it's just right. so foreign and it's just so out of most people's yeah. world view that you know they're just like oh it just must be scary over there and I'm huh. like no people were great yeah people were great I know? had some amazing times in yeah. Jordan I made some amazing friendships with women and yeah. you're just brought into homes and the hospitality and you don't hear as much about that aspect you hear about the stuff that's on the news a lot and that's a shame you yeah. know, I'd like to experience the Middle East more. Maybe next, Afghanistan, yeah, never Pakistan, know. you never know. Okay, my dear. Are you ready for your uh, Traveler's 10 questions? Sure. All right. What travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Man, you know, it's like, it's definitely going to be 
A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush by okay. Eric Newby. Have you read that? I haven't read that. Okay, it was published in the 1950s, and it's really darkly comic. I mean, it's huh. just like this guy in Britain sort of embracing the whole British colonialism, like, I want to travel to someplace in the former empire that is really foreign and really out there. And That's so funny. he picks, like, you know, going with a friend of his who was in the Foreign Service and who had spent time in Afghanistan to Nuristan, which is the former Kafiristan. Kafiristan, it was called that because it was like the land of non-believers. And Nuristan is just, it's just, I mean, now you would never go on this hike, right? It's yeah. incredibly dangerous. But, you know, even then, it's dangerous terrain. And this guy yeah. had never climbed anything. And, you know, he's going to the Hindu Kush as his first sort of big adventure. You know, I think I know why you like that book. I, I love this book, right? Because <laughs> you it's jumped like, over all yeah, the Europe travel. Yeah, all the yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. it's got this real British sensibility about it and, like, the whole idea of bringing an air mattress on this hike of the Hindu Kush and, like, this wow. guy that's just like, oh, my God, you're a couple of pansies. Yeah. The whole idea of not really knowing what you're getting into when you're going into it. And that's why it just makes me want to hop on a plane because I'm like, yeah, man, if this guy can do it, if I can do it, anybody yeah. can really do it. I um, love that. Yeah, just very dry sense of humor. It's very funny. <laughs> what destination do you consider a best kept secret? You know, you always hesitate to give your best kept secrets, but yeah. I want to give one that's not Iran, that's not Afghanistan, that's not Pakistan. It's a little bit more you're, you can actually travel there. So it's in India. It's okay. in the northern part of the state of Maharashtra, and it's these two sets of caves, Ajanta and Alora. Oh, wow. Now, these are these caves that are just magical and you can't even believe they exist. They were basically done between, I think, like the 2nd century BC and like the 3rd century AD and oh, wow. are the most sort of phenomenal examples of Buddhist and architecture that I've seen. I mean, you like go into these caves and there's this elaborate Buddha carved out of there. And, you know, you've got this pathway that's going through and connecting all these series of caves. Huh. And another interesting thing about it is like it's in this densely forested area, right? So forest just grew over it. And it was like in the early 1800s that a British explorer just sort of stumbled upon these caves in the middle of this forested Always area. Always the best way. You know, and like, <laughs> so you can go see them. As with many things in India, it's a bit ramshackle, you know, it's yeah. not like there are guardrails keeping folks away from falling off Dying. the side of a cliff right. or like actually being inside the caves. But it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's... Yeah. Um, the things you see there are great. It's beautiful terrain. You get to see a lot of great people watching as well, including, you know, the sort of rich Indian or Asian travelers who will go there and have other Indians carry them around. Yeah, yeah. But on, on their backs, basically. I um, didn't realize that still oh, existed. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it still exists. Huh. It still exists in India. You know, caste system in yeah, yeah. is alive and well in many parts. Yeah. So to be able to see that and to see the intricacy of some of these carvings. And you've also got some Hindu and Jain paintings, okay. some of the best sort of paintings in those religions that can yeah. be found anywhere. So it's wonderful. I'll check it out next year. Yeah. Got my five-year visa. Yeah. To <laughs> what site should be seen at least once in a lifetime, and why? You know, this is hard because you just yeah, said, "Geez, I just, just gave you a site." <laughs> I mean, like, what do you want? Hey, uh, okay, why not go see the missing Buddhas? Let's do a Buddha pairing okay. here. The missing Buddhas of Bamiyan in Afghanistan. Okay. So you've got these are the Buddhas that were basically dynamited and destroyed yep. by the Taliban in, I, I believe it was the early part of 2001. Yeah, um, I remember that. And that was devastating. It was, all the looting of all yeah, the archaeological... Yeah, and all, all the sort of like idea of 
why they would do that. And so you go there now, and it's just such a, it's a beautiful journey there. I mean, the mountains up in Bamiyan are just gorgeous in this really sort of stark way because they, of course, don't have a lot of trees there. Okay. So you get these very sort of sharp mountains that are purple and blue and green, just the different huh. earth that they've got up there. And... No, very stark, red. And then you sort of come upon the small little town of Bamiyan, really is a town. And in the side of this cliff, you've got these two giant, look like almost like giant coffins where the Buddhas oh, used yes, to be. I've seen a right? Of this. And yeah. then you've got just with the shadows of the Buddhas and what used to be there. And these caves that are around them where folks used to live, they're not supposed to live there anymore. You know, look, it's it's not like you're going there and you're seeing the Buddhas, but it's it's incredibly beautiful and I think a real reminder of why we need to be involved in the world. Mm -hmm. it, it blends politics and religion and mm -hmm. this sort of national treasure that isn't yeah. there any longer. And it's just, you know, it's an amazing thing to be able to see. There's no shards of anything. No, no I mean, I, they've been pulling those out and I haven't been there for a while, but they're like doing a museum and like, oh, they're, they are. They're, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. and I mean, there's always folks working there from UNESCO trying to figure out Good. how you can turn it into some sort of site. Yeah. Know. Huh. But no, it's Hopefully they definitely can still, worth Yeah. It's definitely worth seeing. Interesting. Speaking. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? I mean, it's always going to come back to being a kid in Montana and going backpacking, being out in the mountains, and sometimes, you, you know, you'd eat fish if you caught it. Yeah. But other than that, you'd be like on this freeze-dried stuff or, <laughs> you know, beef jerky or gorp, the mixture of nuts and chocolate, and you would just be, at the end of it, just like, oh my God, I just need, I need something that's actually, something that's actually fresh, you yeah. know? So it would always be stopping at A&W because it would be our first stop after backpacking was stopping at A&W and, you know, you'd find yourself ordering, I want this and this and this and, you know, <laughs> be able to eat maybe half what you ordered, but three burgers and an order of onion rings. And that was always the best. I can't think of anything that tastes yeah. better than like being deprived and then having a meal like right. that. You know, it's interesting. So you did go on adventures, backpacking adventures with your family. Right, So right, you right. became intrepid when you were a child. Sure, sure, okay. sure. Okay. That was like my family as well. We went on some crazy adventures. Some of them maybe we shouldn't have been on because they were dangerous. Right. Getting lost with our motorcycles in the boonies. And, yeah. you know, it gets really cold and we could have frozen overnight. Maybe not to that extent. Right. But I still feel like that foundation of, hey, we can do anything. Sure. Whether it's true or not. What was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how could other travelers avoid it? Nerve-wracking experience on the road. I mean, like, <laughs> don't go to Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's always going to be something like breaking down over a mountain pass called the Bloody in Afghanistan when, you know, you weren't quite sure how you were going to get out of it. There's no AAA you can call there. So, you know, look, if you're in a dangerous situation like that, you always want to travel with the second car. It's yeah. pretty simple. You know, print journalists, we don't really tend to do things like that. So, <laughs> yeah. You have so many more books than you, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> what passport stamp still eludes you? I would love to go to Cuba, nice. yeah, you know, um, yeah, so, too. but I don't know if they can actually stamp you for that. I want to get to Cuba before, I mean, I know it's changed so much, but like, you know. Well, it has, but better to go now versus yes. when it changes even more. Yeah, so. exactly. What is your most cherished souvenir and why? You know, I'm not very attached to material things and most of my stuff in storage got flooded and was totally destroyed. And that, I guess, really taught me what mattered was my notebooks. 
it was my notebooks, you know, because, I mean, half of them were saved, but half of them were just, they were washed so clean, you couldn't even tell what was in them. And that, to me, was the most precious thing I had, because it was all my memories from over there. So, yeah, that would have to be it. So how were you able to, so your notebooks that you were going to use as well for your book? Or yeah, like, yeah. Most of them actually, most of the Afghan ones were fine and okay. most of the Pakistani ones were fine. A lot of the tsunami ones were totally destroyed. And it's amazing when you sit down to write a book. It's like most of my stuff, I, you know, I kept all this email back and forth. I'd kept notes. You realize how few words 95,000 words is. It's yeah. really not that many when you're looking at five years. Yeah. So, I was thinking I'd be taking all this detailed stuff out of my notebooks, and I did take some detailed stuff out of my notebooks, Mm -hmm. but not nearly as much as I thought I would going into it. Interesting. That's good to know. Did you need to do some fact-checking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's something I'm going to have to do on mine as well, that I know what I experienced there, but what does it really mean? I know what it meant to me, but what about the culture? I don't... There's a lot of that that I have to struggle well, with. Well, and also making sure, I mean, like, look, I, Farouk, who was my translator, fixer, local journalist in Afghanistan, and is kind of like if there's a main sort of relationship I have in the book, it's between me and him. I wanted to make sure he was okay with it and that yeah. I wasn't endangering anybody in his family and that I got things right. So yeah. I allowed him to read the book before the final copy was done. So That's really good of you. What's the most interesting customer tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? I mean, I always love the fact that women in Ladakh, in India, would have more than one husband. I mean, like, that's unusual, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, some. That's very unusual. Some, and I've not brought that home. I don't. Not yet, no. Not yet, not yet. (laughs) Um, And, oh, I mean, what else? It's just, yeah, there's butter tea. It's horrible. In Nepal? Um, or in India know, as well? Do they yeah, drink that? Oh, yeah, yak no. butter? The yak yeah, butter tea? Yeah. yeah, it's horrible. It's so um, bad. It's like salted butter, it tastes yeah. like. And then, Melted. Yeah. Burying your placenta in your front yard. I don't know. Are you going to do that? That's in, in Indonesia. No, I'm not going to do that. No. <laughs> I don't see that happening. What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? I relax and don't overschedule. Mm, just go with it. Yeah. I mean, you you sort of want to do something and have a general itinerary, but when you get too stressed out about seeing everything, Mm -hmm. you don't allow time for diversions, which are often like the best part of traveling, or even just meeting people, which to me always was the best part of traveling, is talking to people and meeting people. Yeah, so that serendipitous meeting, and you're invited to their home, and if you had it all buttoned down what you were doing, you would be like, oh, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. Yeah, we don't (laughs) have time for that. have got to get to that tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's important. What's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, I I really know who I am now, and I know how to be alone, you know? And I know I can count on myself in anything at this point. That's right. That's me too. How do you think that's going to play out in future relationships? I don't know. I mean, like... You're okay with it, though, regardless. I mean, like, I would rather be alone than be in a bad relationship. Agreed. Which is, like, a, a huge thing to realize because yeah. I think a lot of women men you gotta stay in it because you don't want to be alone you they know settle. it's like yeah yeah so I mean never gonna settle nope <laughs> love it yeah thank you so much sure. and best of luck my biggest takeaway from Kim Barker's conversation besides the fact that she's a famously funny and incredibly lovely human being is that if she could survive living in the Middle East as a single Western woman 
then to all my ladies out there, we simply have no more excuses. Don't ever let fear hold you back. Unless maybe there's a militant uprising or a national revolution going on. I hope Kim's stories were as inspiring to you as they were to me. And if so, then make sure to purchase her book, The Taliban Shuffle, on Amazon, or follow her on Twitter at Kim underscore Barker. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.